0: Welcome to the PeaceWorks Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Moles. I'm a pastor and biblical counselor who helps churches and families confront the evil of domestic violence and promote healthy, God-honoring relationships. And welcome back to the PeaceWorks Podcast, everyone. On today's episode, we're going to be answering more questions regarding uh, perpetrators of domestic abuse. But before we do that, I want to remind you once again about PeaceWorks University. You know, if you're benefiting from what you're hearing here on the PeaceWorks podcast, PeaceWorks University is your best next step. PeaceWorks University is our online membership community. And uh, within the membership, you'll find hours upon hours of video-based resources, written material, interviews, live Q&As, a thriving community of helpers that are engaged. So what are you waiting for? If you want to learn more about PeaceWorks University, if you want to join, head over to chrismoles.org. All right, let's jump into today's conversation. We're answering some more of your questions regarding perpetrator behavior, uh, tactics, personality. And again, uh, I don't know if these are coming from personal experience or curiosity, whether they're coming from victims, helpers, or perpetrators. But I do think that uh, the questions we've been receiving are worth discussing. So I want to try to tackle a couple more on this episode. The first question is, how can a victim respond to her abusive husband promoting a false narrative about their marriage and their family? What can she do to promote truth and understanding when there are so many lies being told? You know, I don't know that I can give you a clear, well-developed strategy for your particular case, if this is, you know, your case, Um, but I can say, first of all, that all of us tend to craft a narrative that's favorable for us. I think that was one of the running gags in the old black and white television shows, the sitcoms, you might remember uh, Dick Van Dyke or um, Danny Thomas, that there would be these recollection moments where they'd flash back and, of course, the image of themselves were very positive and the image of their spouse was very negative. So there is always, to some degree, some of that favorable recollection. But in cases of abuse, what's being described here is a common tactic of either promoting a particular narrative to be believed and engaged in or for lack of a better term, a smear campaign to undermine the credibility of the victim. And I do want to say from the outset, I don't know that your greatest strategy is to combat combat the lies with the same passion that they're being presented. And and the reason why I say that is the average person, and victims in particular, are, are usually far less skilled at The manipulative tactics of deceit that many abusers practice. It's going to be very difficult for you to match the um, aggression or uh, faux credibility, kind of the initial credibility that your partner may receive. That doesn't mean that truth should not be spoken. I think what we see this, where we see this most visibly in the church, is when uh, the abusive partner uh, is being called to account by their spouse, by the victim, and they begin to rally the troops around them by presenting a very clear presentation of their innocence and their partner's guilt. And that narrative uh, becomes the adoptive narrative of most of the folks in the congregation. The other dilemma to this is that, unfortunately, many pastors will engage with that same narrative because of fear fear of a false accusation, fear of jumping to conclusions, fear of not hearing a matter properly. And sometimes the second story or the perpetrator's story will be more convincing. And so I do want to say from the outset that we are dealing with a true reality, something that is happening quite often uh, in cases of abuse. What can an individual do to promote truth? Well, they can Uh, They can seek help from multiple sources, if possible. Now, again, I don't know the ins and outs of each each particular story, so I'm going to make some assumptions. I'm going to assume that people are informed of the abuse, that caregivers are engaged, and that safety has been established. So let's operate under those assumptions so that you can seek help safely. Assuming that those are true, and that you can seek help safely, one thing I would recommend, a couple things. First, I would recommend connecting to a trained advocate, whether it's a community-based advocate or a faith-based advocate through someone like our friends at Called to Peace who can begin to help you with your story, Uh, listening, piecing together the story. I would also recommend... um, some form of trauma-informed biblical care, Uh, perhaps connecting with our friends at the Christian Trauma Healing Network would be helpful. But the idea here is understanding that victims' stories are often disjointed because of trauma. They're often misunderstood because of the high intensity of the story. They're often emoted very strongly. Um, all that to say that oftentimes a victim's rendition of the narrative is seen to be less credible because the perpetrator is often calm, direct, and confident in their delivery, where the victim is often trepidatious or uh, disjointed, unable to connect the pieces um, linearly. That a lot of times men, in particular, and pastors in general, are are looking for, and so it, it can it can be very difficult to gain headway um, as a truther, to be quite honest. So having a trauma informed uh, biblical counselor, somebody who understands, okay, your story is a little disjointed. Let's kind of walk through how we can restory this and get the narrative clear having an advocate who can patiently walk with you to document accounts to help you put them on a line and structure the things that are most important to tell. That's one thing I love about an advocate is that she can graciously say, you know, the the 10 things you just told me are so important and valuable to your story, but the pastor really needs to know these three. I think these three things are the things that are the most um, accurate, compelling, directive, helpful to the story. And so having people in your life that can help you tell the truth is one thing that, that I find to be highly, um, beneficial Two is time. And I, I know that not all of us are, are fans of time. There's a, there's an old adage that says that when we, and I think it was Wendell Berry who said this regarding, um, um, the environment, perhaps, um, conservationism, that we often want the solution to a problem to be as you know grandiose and as significant as the cause of the problem. And so we, we look for solutions that are large-scale and, and sweeping, and, and that's why so much of the argumentation around um, environmentalism is often all or nothing. And rarely is that the case with any form of conservation. Um, all or nothing rarely works. What does work is small incremental steps of change. And um, that's true as well in, in this regard, I think. I think the abuse has been graphic. It's been damaging. It's been destructive. And one thing that the abuser doesn't need is time. He can craft his story quickly and confidently. But one thing the victim must rely on is time because time has a way of allowing the truth to seep through. So meeting the abuser's narrative with an equally grandiose and equally confident and equally aggressive narrative will probably not be as effective as continuing to tell the same consistent story over time. All the more reason to have people around you and surrounding you uh, with truth to help you formulate that and um, deliver that. And then I think the heartache is that people will not believe you. There will be moments in which the, the lies, the deceit will be believed. And having those folks around you that can comfort you and continue to work towards that kind of water on the rock penetration of saying, okay, we're, we're making headway can be a great help to you because, again, the solution will rarely be as large scale uh, as the problem. Question number two uh, for today's episode. How often do you see perpetrators engage in abusive behaviors that border on or are illegal, such as extortion, fraud, abuse of the legal system, etc.? That's an interesting question. And and again, the, the how often is going to trip me up a little bit because I I don't have numbers on this. Um, I will say, I think there's a misconception that the church is kind of is limited by emotional abuse or psychological abuse that you don't see as much criminal abuse in the church. I would, I would disagree. I would say that, um, a lot of times you will uncover criminality, um, Illegal behavior uh, in church-based interventions. That doesn't mean they're prosecutable. It doesn't mean that law enforcement can move on that. They may be unfounded at that regard. Uh, statute of limitations, evidence-based—you know—all of that can come to 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 play in church-based interventions. But often, yes, church-based interventions we're dealing with law, large-scale, long-term emotional abuse, for instance, or spiritual abuse but it is not uncommon to find in the history as you're peeling back the layers of historical data to find an incident, say, of strangulation in the past. Not necessarily reportable, perhaps, um, not something that someone could be charged of, right? I mean, you going to be very difficult to retroactively charge someone with a 20-year-old misdemeanor. Uh, however, they will come up in church-based interventions. And so illegal behavior such as assault, battery, harassment, stalking, that violate the legal code are quite frequent. Now, the questioner seems to be elaborating to other areas of life. Excuse me. So, yes, legality, illegal behavior will come up quite a bit. Um, Co-occurring issues that cross legal bounds, drug addiction, uh, drug use, um, possession, and intent to distribute are all aspects of the work that we do. I think people would be shocked at um, the numbers of folks who claim to be Christians who are also participating in um, drug use and then also possession and distribution crimes. That may again fall into those misdemeanor categories, depending on the size and the scale of the and the quantities of the material. But that's not uncommon. I'll give you another one. Um, again, that would kind of fall into that low-level legality, I guess. Um, illegal gambling, uh, which is becoming less and less prominent because the legality of gambling gambling is becoming much more of an accepted practice in many states, but there are still areas of the country where Uh, People who are abusive, we're also finding that they're engaged in um, illegal forms of gambling, kind of backroom games and gambling. Uh, The questioner specifically mentions things like extortion and fraud. Absolutely, especially with individuals in a position of power. And so the same heart that is compelling an individual to abuse their power against their spouse or against a child may have the same capacity to commit acts of abuse towards a company or towards church. So the idea of a pastor, for instance, who is maybe a single pastor, a lone pastor, in a relatively mid-sized church, and so a lot of responsibilities, low level of accountability, um, may be abusing his wife in private, uh, emotional abuse, mental abuse, spiritual abuse, physical abuse, um, would it surprise us? Is it a one for one? No. But would it surprise us if he is putting his hand in the offering plate as it were? No, uh, there, there would be the same self-deception that would lead him to justify his violence against his family may very well lead him to justify a uh, theft from the church. For instance, uh, the same could be said for fraud, uh, and abusing the legal system, which, The abuse of the legal system, I will say that abusers often find themselves, and they're not alone. They're often influenced and and contributed to by uh, attorneys. Uh, There are often a lot of mental gymnastics that go into using legal loopholes or legal precedent to gain advantages. And so, yes, that's not uncommon at all for individuals who perhaps have been highly abusive and have had no concern for their own children, for instance, demand and try to gain full custody, as an example, to um, to reap the financial benefits or to re-victimize or harm their partner. Um, the same could be true for individuals who, say, um, become unemployed by their own decision, quitting or violating rules in such a way to get fired from a position to limit their ability to pay child support or to contribute to alimony or some other form of post-separation agreement. Uh, And then, of course, the classic is the violation of protection orders, um, a willingness to circumvent legal and civil authority in order to continue to harm somebody by violating civil protection orders or conditions of a sentencing or criminal order, uh, or even remain in contempt of court. Um, a desire, a preference. And I've seen this on a few occasions, uh, preferring to go to jail than being forced to attend class or participate in restoration or some form of restorative justice, demanding instead the retributive aspect of, I would rather serve my time in jail than contribute to my family. Um, so those type of, you know, vengeful responses could be could be part of this as well. So um, I guess I've seen it more often than perhaps I'd initially thought. The question says, how often have you seen this? Um, probably more often than I've thought. I guess if you broaden the scope to say illegal behavior, um, not just like felonious behavior, but you know things such as uh, substance abuses or violating protective civil protection orders or hassling social workers that falls within the scope of the code, probably see that very often especially among those who have been charged with a crime uh, misdemeanor assault battery or so on so yeah it wouldn't be uncommon to encounter this at the church either Uh, those charges just or those conditions may not have been met to charge the individual and it may be something in the past which is often coming up very interesting question and and hopefully that was helpful we may do this some more in the future. This has been uh, helpful to answer just some curious questions about perpetrator behavior and interactions in the church. I thank you guys for submitting those continue to send your questions our way so we can engage with them here at the Peaceworks podcast. If you are enjoying what you're hearing here on the podcast, would you do us a favor rate review, subscribe, uh, whatever the platform you're listening on um, uses to, evaluate podcast. Would you help us out? Let them know that you value the PeaceWorks podcast. Thank you guys so much again for being part of the podcast, being part of the PeaceWorks family. You are so appreciated. Until next time, God bless.